Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everybody, welcome to episode 9 of season 2 of Apocryphal Australia. My name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins. Now Stephen, it's remarkable because for a change we are actually face to face. I know, it's, I've, I've almost forgotten what AA headquarters looks like. It's, it's, it's a thrill to be back. I've been out touring the regional towns and digging up research and doing all sorts of things. So it's... Say hi to everyone. It's been a case of, like, ships passing in the night because when I've been in the headquarters, you've been out on the road, and when I've been out there, you've been in headquarters. So we've been doing remote sessions for a long time now. Yeah, it's nice to be back home. Indeed. So we've got, as usual, we've got a -a chock-a-block episode today. But before we get into it, Stephen, I'd like to continue this tour of Apocryphal Australia headquarters, where we've introduced people into some of the items, some of the objects we've gathered over the years of doing our Apocryphal Australia work. And I'd like to take everybody upstairs to the Apocryphal Australia Gallery or Museum. Talking about the Gallery or the Museum, I actually don't want to go into the Gallery Museum today. What I want to do is I want to linger in the foyer. First of all, we have to go through the lovely double doors with brass handles. And in the foyer, we have a number of glass exhibition cases where the head of the gallery museum, Rosie Uman, rotates items for display. Objects that might usually be in storage or she simply feels deserve public view. One item, though, that doesn't rotate through here is this bust of the largest and most central of the exhibition cases. This is obviously a modern bust, it's not ancient, and the man looks to be in his 50s with large horn rim spectacles, uh, wearing a sports jacket and a well-knotted tie. This is Dorian V. Cornbilt, and he deserves a very special place in every museum or gallery. This might sound strange when you hear that he spent most of his life in marketing in New York City, New York, USA in the late 1950s and into the 1960s, but he had a bright idea, an idea that took root and quickly spread across the world, and it's become an essential part of museums and galleries to this very day. You see, Dorian V. Cornbilt was the man who came up with the notion of putting a museum gift shop next to the exit. This Extra revenue generated was a saviour for many establishments and when, just a few years later, he tweaked this brainwave so that to get to an exit, patrons had to pass through the gift shop. He earned the gratitude of every museum, gallery, financial controller throughout the world. Dorian V. Cornbilt, a true visionary. I've always found the gift shop really, really handy because I just remembered it's my wife's birthday soon. Thanks, Dorian. Well, Stephen, I think we need to sashay straight into our first item for today. What have you got for us? We're going to kick off today with a a person. This is all about Robert or Bob Chapley. Bob Chapley was born in Ware, a small town in the Mallee region of Victoria in 1801. He grew up in the area and began working with his uncle, growing apples and other fruits, which were transported to Melbourne by Bullock Dray. 
On one such journey, the young Robert was struck by the lack of food growing by the wayside, and he decided to copy the acts of an American missionary he had read about. The tale of American Johnny Appleseed is well known. Johnny Appleseed travelled the length, or rather the breadth, of the United States, planting apple trees so that migrating peoples who came after him would benefit. Robert Chapley adopted his mentor's habit of wearing a metal pan on his head. It was thought that Johnny Appleseed did this just to carry his cooking gear with him, but who knows. Anyway, Robert Chapley copied his actions slavishly. Cynics have pointed out that this affectation may have impacted Chapley's reduced capabilities in the longer term due to the harsh Australian sun, basically cooking his brain under the metal pan as he wore as a hat. It was this same harsh Australian sun that killed all of the apple trees that Chapley planted. And so Robert, or Bob, as he was now known, hit upon the idea of planting blackberry bushes along the tracks he travelled. He knew that blackberry bushes were hardy plants that would easily survive the climactic conditions of Australia. And so off he travelled, eating blackberries and spitting out the slightly masticated fruits so that the seeds would flourish. And flourish they did, to the point where they became an unruly thicket of thorny branches. The blackberries spread quickly and soon were declared a problem plant by the government. Now, Bob Chapley was nothing if not stupid, Feeling guilty about having caused a problem for farmers, he set about devising ways to rid the region of blackberry bushes. He hacked at them, but this only seemed to make them grow even more vigorously. So he hit upon another brilliant idea. Rabbits. He knew that rabbits loved living in and around blackberry bushes, so therefore, he reasoned, they must eat them. He managed to get his hand on some rabbits and release them, two at a time, along the tracks he travelled. When the government proclaimed rabbits a major problem, the good-meaning but clearly lacking in predictive skills Chapley then decided that the answer to the rabbit problem he had introduced was the introduction of cats. The cats thrived and spread across all of the country. The rabbits thrived and spread across all of the country as well. And the cats did the same. Had Bob heard the song about the old women who swallowed a fly, the country might have had even worse problems. Cats ravaged the native wildlife and caused a frenzy of door opening and closing in farms and homes across the state and later the country. The now middle-aged Chapley had run out of ideas and he withdrew from society. Bob Blackberry Chapley had a huge impact on Australia and our way of life. The dopey bastard. Bob, so he is the one responsible. I mean, you hear many stories about the introduction of all of these noxious pests, but one man. One man can do an awful lot of damage. One cat, one rabbit, one blackberry bush can do an awful lot of damage. Michael, I've had a quick look at the running sheet, and this one sounds absolutely intriguing. Inner empowerment training. Yes, Stephen, we're getting into a fascinating intersection of the world of the arts and corporate Australia. And this is Inner Empowerment Training. So Inner Empowerment Training, or IET, was a 1990s combination of multi-level marketing, new age pop psychology and cult. So it's hardly noteworthy amid the sea of combination, multi-level marketing, new age pop psychology and cults that abounded at this time. Except for one thing, IET harnessed the power of mime. 
I'm indebted to one of our listeners here who has supplied the eye-opening background material I've used for this piece, some of which I'm assured has never been seen by anyone outside of IET before. My informant, uh, sorry, 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 uh, correspondent would normally be called a whistleblower, but she prefers to be known as an ocarina blower for reasons best known to herself. IET actually began in the late 1980s when busking pair Ivy Ogilvie and Brian Toogood realised that miming for money in public places wasn't the way to the fortune they'd hoped for. They had met at the International Academy of Mime in Nice, France, where they graduated and came back to Australia to parlay their skills into fame and riches. Two years later, two years of hauling on invisible ropes, being trapped in invisible cells, having trouble walking into invisible winds, had left them homeless and broke, despite the promises of the International Academy of Mime, whose motto, Mime your way to fun and riches, might have been an exaggeration. It was Ivy Ogilvy who had the brainwave. Why not turn mime into a cult? Surely that was the way to rack up the moolah. Brian was on board because he immediately saw that the first challenge for a cult, the recruiting, could be surmounted in two ways. One, by tapping into the huge disaffected cohort of practising mime artists. Two, by sending these recruits into the wild to recruit passing shoppers. Within months, the cult was burgeoning with recruits. Sadly, the riches weren't rolling in, despite Ivy and Brian tithing all new members. A tenth of very little is even littler. After all, something else was needed. Ivy and Brian put their heads together and when they'd recovered from concussion, their brilliant plan was to take their cult somewhere where the money was like water, the world of big business. This is truly where IET began. In 1992, Brian and Ivy marketed IET to banks, mining corporations, insurance conglomerates and, importantly, the nascent tech industry. Anywhere that would be dazzled by words like empowerment, uh, communication, and most importantly, productivity. Offering guided and bespoke professional development in MIME to increase office efficiency, meeting agendas, and annual reviews sounded unlike anything else. And since in the 1990s these companies had cash to splash around on just about anything, Ivy and Brian were besieged by customers. Of course, being a cult at heart, every customer was a potential disciple, according to Ivy, and IET grew like blue-green algae on a hot summer's day. The first signs of problems at IET's swanky new harbourside headquarters occurred in 1997, when a minor disagreement between Ivy and Brian occurred over whether to include living statues in their recruitment. Brian insisted it was necessary as the wild growth of IET meant they needed more instructors to go out into the field and spread the good word in boardrooms across the country. Or spread the good stylized gestures, anyway. Ivy disagreed because she didn't like living statues finding them scary. The argument raged in the inner sanctum. Three hours of exaggerated face-pulling, outrageous mock fainting and over-the-top swivelling arms crossed on chests and dismissive expressions. IET was formally dissolved the next day. Ivy Ogilvy has recently released an autobiography called It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Mime in Malls, while Brian Toogood is now working with the World Bank in Geneva. As far as cults go, this one seems reasonably benign. They don't seem as blatantly evil as most cults. 
I don't think they were around long enough. They were going to get there, I'm sure. Well, what, what was their ultimate goal besides making loads of cash? Oh, hang on, wait, I get it. Stephen, now I'm looking forward to this one. Roll it out for us. This is a, a return to the world of entertainment and George's variety show. Um, it needs to be remembered that prior to the introduction of radio and the television, Australians got their entertainment live. One such source of entertainment was the travelling variety show, and one of the most varied of these was George's variety extravaganza. George Evans was the son of Charles and Harriet Evans, who toured Australia with the famed Goldie Circus in the early 1900s. Young George grew up surrounded by lions, acrobats, talented musicians and circus folk of all persuasions. He hated it. George Evans yearned for a quiet, bookish life and he was just about to go to university to study literature when Harold Gold, owner of the circus, passed away, leaving the entire circus to young George. In his will, he said he viewed George as the son he never had and after a few pointed and knowing looks from the staff at the circus... George, uh, Charles sorry, and Harriet announced their intention to keep the show running until their son was old enough to take over. However, they did so on the proviso that George had to stay with the circus and give up his dreams of a life in literature and instead perform. Whilst furious at his parents for taking away his chance to escape, George knew that the circus would at least provide a source of income and he could write his books and poetry in the evenings. George agreed to his parents' demands, but refused to talk to them ever again. And, as he did not enjoy the company of the other performers, he refused to talk to them either. And this became the basis for his act, George Evans' mime artiste. And for a while he became the star attraction with his famous mime acts, such as Walking in a Strong Wind, Man in a Glass Box, all the usual ones, and his tour de force, Man Putting Together a Bedside Table from Ikea. And that was before anyone knew what Ikea was, or that it even existed. He originally used the word Acme, but was afraid of legal repercussions, so he pulled letters randomly out of a hat and came up with Ikea. The circus continued on, with George's desultory input. The lion got old and had mange. The big lady lost weight, and it was now billed as just the lady. The strong man got old and infirm, and the whole circus became jaded and faded. George's parents could see the writing on the wall and retired, leaving George free to do as he pleased. George knew that a big shake-up was needed, so he fired everyone and started afresh. He hired new acts. The Irish comedy duo Richard Rick O'Shea and Nicholas O'Teen, the songbird Annabelle, invariably shortened to Anna Conda, Mesmo the Almost Astonishing and Harry Houdini, but not the Harry Houdini. George also hired Wallace Trotter, the well-known ventriloquist, who was a bit down on his luck and whose own career needed a boost. George decided that he and Wallace could form a new double act to finish off the show, but he had a twist in mind for the act. The night of the premiere of the new act drew near. The troupe had set up on the outskirts of Clack, a small town near Bendigo, Victoria. Flyers were distributed, advertisements abounded, interest was high. Rick O'Shea and Nick O'Teen wowed the audience. Anaconda sang her heart out, mesmo mesmerised, and Harry Houdini gave an interesting talk on what it's like to be continually mistaken for somebody famous. And then the big moment. Lights down, the chair is placed centre stage. 
two figures approach the chair. One sits, the other sits on the knee of the first. Lights up, polite warm applause, which George and Wallace acknowledge with a slight nod. Then, nothing. They just sat there. Unbeknownst to the rest of the troupe, George had come up with a novel way to revive his own mime act and Wallace's own ventriloquism act. They would switch roles. George sat trying to mime words while Wallace sat on his knee doing nothing as there were no words to act upon. The crowd booed. The curtain closed and the show did not go on. George Emmons went on to write several books on mime. They didn't sell. He died in 1992. Stephen, it's remarkable how often we have intersections, planned or unplanned, and the world of mime runs right through both of our most recent items here. And I'm wondering if George's legacy lived on and in some ways was revived, either consciously or or simply spiritually, by inner empowerment training. Well, I think it might have been, and and I think it's it's actually affected society as a whole. I think mime is making a huge comeback, and you can see this whenever you join a Zoom meeting and people haven't turned on their microphone. Michael, you're going to tell us all about the intriguingly named Cicely Marpazan, is it? Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. I stumbled over this one for some time and it's actually Cicely Marzipan. So I'll jump straight into it, if you like. Cicely Marzipan, also known as the Oracle of Little Collins Street, had a brief window of fame in the late 1890s when her predictions caused a sensation in political, cultural and sporting circles. Cicely Marzipan's background is shrouded in mystery. She gave several contradictory accounts of her birthplace, parents and upbringing. Accordingly, her year of birth is variously listed as 1867, 1870, 1871, 1875 and even, in one instance, 1714. But that was probably a misprint from the famous fumble-fingered typesetter Freddie Gauchery, who somehow managed to have a 42-year employment history in the industry despite consistently spelling Australia as Australan. Cicely Marzipan is likewise described as an orphan, an only child, and the oldest of 16 children. Her parents were solid local stock and or immigrants from South Georgia in the far reaches of the Atlantic. She was born in any number of places across Australia and the world. Basically, take your pick. Regardless of her uncertain background, Cicely Marzipan came to fame when she was probably in her 20s and living in the Garment District of Melbourne, Little Collins Street. In May 1890, she placed a large piece of cardboard in her first floor window with the words, It will rain tomorrow, written in bold block letters. Passers-by noticed. A small crowd gathered. Fingers were pointed. Interest was aroused. When the next day dawned with consistent, if light, rain, another crowd gathered in front of Cicely's flat to find the window vacant of anything apart from a neat lace curtain. Three days passed. Another placard appeared. This one had the words, A man of fame will taste disgrace, written on it. The very next day, not one, but three politicians were revealed as being caught up in scandals. Horace Everington in New South Wales with a property bribery scandal. Bertie Essence in Queensland was found to be having an affair with his wife's twin sister. And the Honourable Rufus Trigonom in Western Australia, was found to be keeping dozens of guinea pigs in the ceiling of his Fremantle offices. 
Her credentials established, the next day Cicely Marzipan placed a fresh placard in her window advertising her services as the Oracle of Little Collins Street. Needless to say, people beat a path to her door. A reporter from the Melbourne Vindicator, a newspaper that was only published between 1888 and 1891, with all records being expunged and all back copies burnt after the Tess of the Dandenong scandal, made a booking and reported that Cicely Marzipan sat in a throne-like chair behind a gauze curtain while coloured smoke was piped in and wafted about her feet. In a hoarse, guttural voice, she predicted every winner of Saturday's race meeting at Flemington Racecourse. A follow-up article the next Monday pointed out that Cicely Marzipan's session ended with cryptic instructions indicating that all predictions were open to interpretation and names, places and dates were an arbitrary human construction, as was language and perception, and that any errors in understanding were solely due to the client and not the Oracle of Little Collins Street, Proprietary Limited. This article only stimulated interest in Cicely Marzipan's prediction. Toward the end of 1891, she released a book, a slim volume, entirely in verse, even though it doesn't rhyme, which contained, she avowed, predictions for the next hundred years or more. Since publication, it has been voted most opaque text 27 times, beating such competition as Joseph of Thursday Island's The Complete Everything and Maggie O.O.'s The Truth or Whatever You Want. Cicely Marzipan's first-floor window continued to feature well-painted placards offering mysterious prophecies about public taste, gardening trends, scientific developments and fashion. Fortunes were made and lost on her advice, but her reputation wasn't sullied at all. Her overall air of mystery carried the day, and it was said that she held special private sessions for captains of industry, bankers and senior politicians. Cicely Marzipan ran off with her sign writer and gave up the oracle business in 1895. She had four children and died aged 72 when the car she was in was struck by a truck rounding a blind corner. It's safe to say that she didn't see that coming. Now, I, I see this as a missed opportunity. Why didn't the government sign her up? There, there was a rumour, you know how it is, Stephen, when following these things up, there was a, a rumour that she had actually been signed up, but it was all kept undercover. State governments, of course, because we didn't have federal government at that time, some of the state government decisions could well be attributed to Cicely Marzipan's input. Oh, fair enough. I've got one other question. You, you mentioned captains of industry. Why do we only have captains of industry? Why don't we have generals of industry, majors of industry? That's a very good point. We do have private industry. Stephen, let's bring home the bacon with your third piece. Okay, Michael. This one this one is all about the napalm tests and, and it's probably not quite what you're thinking at Whoa, the moment. It, it's sounding heavy. Oh, well, it's... It gets pretty heavy, bear with me. Here at Apocryphal Australia, we've seen our fair share of cover-ups, conspiracies and plain old mistakes. None, however, was more shocking than the napalm tests of 2003. Well, potentially anyway. It started as an ordinary day at Waterloo High School in rural Victoria. The birds sang, the teachers hit the coffee and the year eights were busy being year eights. So yeah, frightening enough in that respect. Hector Shout, the principal of Waterloo High, was busy setting up the area known as the Big Room for the tests that were to take place that day. 
It didn't involve much more than rearranging furniture and surreptitiously putting the clocks back ten minutes to freak out the teachers. But Hector liked to do things by the book. Unfortunately, the book that Hector was doing things by had been written and proofread by a committee formed by the Department of Education, and it was thus almost useless. After having set up the tables and chairs, Hector retired to the staff room for a cup of coffee. As an aside, teachers' coffee is different from the -the run-of-the-mill stuff they sell to the general public. Teachers' coffee is about 50 times stronger. It has industrial-strength levels of caffeine and has been known to make sloths hyperactive in trials conducted by the Victorian Institute of Teaching. After his nice cuppa, Hector went to the secure area of the office to begin transferring that day's test papers to the big room where the tests would be sat. An aside. Sorry, another aside, I should say. Obviously, astute listeners would have picked up that reference to napalm tests earlier. Napalm tests? Why would a school be conducting napalm tests? Wouldn't that be dangerous? I mean, I get it's aimed at Year 7 and 9 kids, but still, seems extreme. Another aside, NAPLAN tests are conducted in Years 7 and 9 of secondary schools in order to hassle kids and upset parents. The National Assessments Program, Literacy and Numeracy, is a program ostensibly designed to measure a student's progress through the early years of schooling. The data collected is used primarily as a source of ridicule for kids these days, and to pinpoint areas of study that might improve students' outcomes. But it's mainly for the ridicule. Anyway, back to Hector Shout. Now, Hector liked to joke as much as the next person, and the next person to Hector was Miriam Clond, who had season tickets to the next 10 comedy festivals in Melbourne. But when he saw the words napalm tests, caution, danger, emblazoned on the boxes meant for his Year 9 cohort, even he wondered if this was a good idea. Was it possible, he thought, that someone, somewhere in the education department, had made a mistake? The answer to that question was a resounding, yes, of bloody course they had, and Hector prevented what could have been the bloodiest NAPLAN day in over three years by the simple expediency of putting the napalm test boxes in the skip at the front of the school. Hector Shout, yet another unsung Aussie hero. Stephen, if anything deserves a special that's apocryphal I say that does (laughs) Michael this again this one looks looks fascinating the the title alone is is enough to to intrigue one but um, I gather it's all about apples it certainly is Stephen and I've entitled this one the great apple nomenclature Imbroglio. And I probably deserve a round of applause for just getting that out in one take. But mm-hmm. the Great Apple Nomenclature Imbroglio was a major brouhaha in the 1920s, but one that was almost totally unknown outside the confines of poem fruit academia. At this time, the University of Southern Tasmania was one of the preeminent institutions in poem fruit research. Poems, apples, pears, quinces, that's that sort of fruit. And the journal published by the Apple Department of the Poem Fruit Faculty, the Tasmanian Apple Journal, was internationally respected as an authority in the area. But in an attempt to invigorate a department that, while well-regarded, had some reputation for being old-fashioned, Dean of the Apple Department, Rod Malkin, wanted to modernise the Tasmanian Apple Journal and bring it into the 19th century. 
1922, with support from his vice-dean, Shadrach Chan, it was decided to change the journal's publishing schedule from once every two years, maybe, to quarterly. Such a revolution needed a revolutionary approach, and thus Malkin and Chan turned to a relatively new advance in printing, truck-top publishing. Truck-top publishing was a unique Tasmanian approach to responsive, small-batch publishing. A printing press and the associated compositing setup was established on the back of a flatbed truck, and thereby able to move quickly between jobs and satisfy demand. The space-saving modifications needed to the machinery to enable it to fit on the back of a truck necessitated highly skilled operators, and those who had adopted this technique early were much in demand. Shadrach Chan was a fervent advocate of the truck-top publishing revolution, and he had a PhD candidate, Jason Ilm, who had shown startling expertise in this area, having come from a long line of printers, bookbinders and pamphleteers. Some latitude with the progress of Jason Ilm's doctorate may have been part of the deal, but after Malkin had diverted tens of thousands of pounds from the faculty tea and coffee fund to the purchase of a vehicle and the necessary printing machinery, within weeks, in July 1923, Jason Ilm had consolidated numerous articles that had been languishing on Malkin's desk and formatted them into a journal that was breathtaking in its modern, minimalist but stylish design. Articles like The Bramley Problem and The Long-Term Effects of Granite-Based Sandy Soil on Cider Apple Production in the Southern Hemisphere had never looked so good. The publication of the new-look Tasmanian Apple Journal stunned the world of poem academia. One senior fellow at the University of Manitoba, Canada, had a heart attack. So enthused was he by the grace of the publication, and soon discussions were being held in common rooms across Australia and the world where the names of Malkin and Chan were being considered for the Chapman Prize, the highest award in the area of poem-related research. The second publication of the Tasmanian Apple Journal, barely a month later, in late August, was even more sensational. Such a publishing schedule was unheard of, and Malkin and Chan were fated. It was not long after the publication of this groundbreaking second issue for 1923 that Jason Ilm disappeared, along with the truck, the printing machinery, and all the articles that had been approved by Malkin and Chan for publication. In November 1923, 23, the third issue of the Tasmanian Apple Journal for that year was published, much to the surprise of Malkin and Chan. Jason Ilm had put it together entirely by himself, and when they perused this publication, they found that all the papers were written by Ilm. And their horror didn't stop there. Single-handedly, Ilm was changing the entire naming system of Australian apples to fit a revolutionary schema of his own devise. Heritage apples such as Simpson's Pride and the Illawarra Bumper were renamed Holus Bolus to Ilm's Pride and the Ilm Bumper. Dozens of apples were renamed in one fell swoop, and such was the authority of the Tasmanian Apple Journal that this renaming was like tablets of stone coming down from Mount Sinai, and orchards and nurseries across the globe dutifully went about renaming all of their stock. Malkin and Chan were dismayed but resolute. This could not be allowed to stand. 
They tracked Ilm down to a boarding house in Launceston, but when they arrived with a pair of hefty undergraduates for assistance, Ilm and his publishing wares had fled to Bishino. When they found the rented flat in Bishino, Ilm had absconded to Scamander. Their pursuit was interrupted, however, by finding a draft of Ilm's upcoming December issue of the Tasmanian Apple Journal, which contained one long article bordering on a rant or or manifesto. Ilm had declared that the Granny Smith was henceforth to be known as the Granny Ilm. The shock nearly drove Malkin mad, but Chan pointed out that this was but a draft and that the December issue hadn't been printed yet, let alone mailed. They had time. The academics put the word out to the Apple network across the state. Greengrocers, nursery staff, academics, cider makers. And soon Ilm was tracked down, having returned to Launceston to water his houseplants. Notifying the top-secret Tasmanian Apple Investigation Bureau, Malkin and Chan were on hand to see the authorities break down the door and arrest Ilm for damaging the Apple industry. Malkin and Chan took the truck and the truck-top printing machinery back to the university, where it lay untouched in a secondary machine shop garage and gathered dust for decades until it was sold for scrap. Jason Ilm was sentenced by the in-camera Court of Poem Fruit Sessions to the maximum 15 years on a citrus grove in New South Wales Riverina. I didn't know that the Apple network was so extensive. Who knows what they could have achieved if they'd worked in concert? That's the core of the problem. Oh, Stephen, <laughs> these Apple-related jokes, you're just peeling them off one by one. <laughs> Coming up towards the end of this episode, but before we do, I think we have to delve into the mailbag. What have you got for us? I have received lots and lots of letters. As as you know, we get tons of letters every week or tons of emails, I suppose I should say. But I just want to concentrate on one piece of correspondence this, this episode, and this is from Kevin Wang, who lives in Hoopla, which I believe is a small town in Western Victoria. Kevin asks if we have noticed that an awful lot of the people places and events that we research are either located in or feature small towns in Western Victoria. Now, I've looked into this. You could say I've researched our research. And Kevin is spot on. Many of our stories do, in fact, feature people born in small towns in Western Victoria or about events that occur in small towns in in Western Victoria. So I had a pretty comprehensive rummage through the archives and there's definitely a percentage of stories originating in this area. I directed teams of researchers to find the cause of this anomaly. Well, what did they find? After months of research, Michael, I can reveal the reason small towns in Western Victoria feature so prominently in our stories thus far and that reason is there is something in the water. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know what that that something is. Instead, I'm going to sit here and pretend that we are conducting exhaustive tests on the water, and I'm confident that something will show up eventually. Also, can I just take this opportunity to assure residents of the small towns in Western Victoria that the water is safe to drink. You will not suffer any ill effects by drinking the water. Mm, what, What makes you say that? Our legal department makes makes me say that, Michael. They were pretty clear on this point. So please, by all means, drink the water. But if you feel the urge to do something apocryphal, 
Could you let us know in advance, as it would save an awful lot of research on our part? Now, Michael, your turn. What, what have you got from the mailbag? Well, I've grabbed two letters, Stephen. Uh, the first one is from Teddy Ginger from uh, Strapladen, Queensland. He wants to know if the rumour's true about Ned Kelly's involvement with aliens. To which I say, exactly which rumour are you referring to, Teddy? The one about the design of his armour? The one about the angle of his shadow at the Geraldry incident? Or the one that suggests that just before sentencing, Judge Redmond Barry was replaced by a body double? Really, listeners, a little more precision in your questions would be appreciated. My second letter is from Valda Cinnamon from Saline Bluff, WA, who asks, Whatever happened to my boyfriend, Murphy Tinpot, who in 1969 set out to surf across the Pacific Ocean? I I never heard. Well, Valda, I've added it to our whiteboard for follow-up, but I think it's safe to say that since you haven't heard and Murphy hasn't dropped you a postcard or anything, that he was simply using this as an excuse never to see you again. In other words, you've been dumped. Well, harsh. Harsh, but accurate. And accuracy is what we're after here at Apocryphal Australia. Absolutely. And I think we're into the home stretch for this episode, Stephen. So we'll do the wind-up. We'll do the wind-up. Oh, and we have to remind people of something, Stephen. Well, we have to remind them of a few things, Michael. We have to remind people to follow us, to like us. That sounds a bit sort of... Needy, doesn't it? It does sound Please needy. like us. Um, <laughs> and, and tell all your friends. Indeed. Because if you don't tell your friends and they're not listening to Apocryphal Australia, look, frankly, they're missing out. They're going to be left behind. And that in this sad world, you can't afford that. But that's it for this episode of Apocryphal Australia. So I'll say goodbye because my name is Michael Pryor. And I'll say goodbye just for the reasons of saying goodbye. My name's Stephen Higgins. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? <laughs>